Well, I hope that you are full of joy this morning, and it wasn't just a song. Joyful, joyful, we adore Thee. I, I love uh, being in church, in the house of God, with the people of God, and uh, I am just excited to be here with you at the beginning of this year. I encourage you to take your Bibles and open, if you would, to the book of Ephesians. We're starting a new series today. Over the next ten weeks, we'll be here in the last half of the book of Ephesians. A little over a year ago, the St. Louis area was in the midst of a boiling pot of unrest in Ferguson. Tension was created there that permeated throughout our region and it reverberated nationally. As difficult as those days were, when we, when we look across the globe, we see that Scenes of unrest, scenes of animosity, of rage and violence, they're hardly rare. Sometimes such things are fueled by race, as in the case of Ferguson, but often from other things, such as, if you go a little farther back in the last year, uh, the haves and have-nots, economic uh, motives were the problem there with Occupy Wall Street. That was what caused the division. Sometimes the division and strife is caused by religion, such as between Sunni Islam and Shiite Islam in the Middle East. Sometimes the problem is political loyalty, such as the division between North and South Korea or the constant bickering and bantering between Republicans and Democrats. 25 years ago, and it's actually 24 years ago, and it's hard to believe it's been that long, but following three days of violent riots in L.A., you might remember Rodney King, whose situation had sparked the whole mess, asked the question, can't we all get along? People have been asking that question almost since the beginning of human history. Can't we get along? Whether we look internationally or whether we look within our own nation, whether we look within our communities or our schools or our workplaces, our sports teams, whether we even look within our church or our own homes, what we find is that there is discord there is conflict, there is division that can arise and erupt almost anywhere at any time. John Lennon imagined that the solution to discord would be to get rid of possessions and to get rid of countries and to get rid of religion. And then everybody would get along. Of course, he's wrong. Because the problem isn't race, the problem isn't religion, the problem isn't borders, the problem isn't possessions, the problem of strife and disunity and division goes much deeper. It goes right to the core, right to the heart of man. And it goes back to the book of Genesis chapter 3, as Adam and Eve are in the perfect Garden of Eden, and when they fall into sin, the immediate result is a division between the two. 
They immediately realize that they are naked and they are ashamed. They realize they are vulnerable, that they are capable of hurting one another. There is division between them and God. And as as God, you recall, when God confronts Adam, Adam throws Eve under the bus. (laughs) The woman you gave me, she did it. (laughs) And that division, that conflict, It started there with the first sin has spread to every one of us and it infects every one of us and it affects every one of us and it infects and affects every one of our relationships. And the question is, is there hope? Is there somehow hope to have have relationships that are not torn apart by discord and strife? in the midst of such a chaotic world and a sinful world? The answer is yes. And here in Ephesians chapter 4, and actually in this whole book of Ephesians, I think we find the greatest manual on relationships ever written. We're going to just, in our ten weeks, we're just going to look at the last half of this book, chapters 4 through 6. And this morning, we're just going to look at the first three verses of chapter 4. So follow along as I read. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I forgot to stop at the verse I was going to stop at, so I couldn't stop before I read all of that. Because that's just great stuff. We're going to get the rest of that next week. Just verses 1 to 3 this morning. Paul says, live, or or he says, walk, live, the same thing, in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And he said, he's told us, given us a command, walk in a manner that is worthy, and we have to ask the question, worthy of what? He says, the calling to which we've been called, and we go, what's that? What is our the calling to which we have been called? Well, he begins this, this section with the word, I therefore. And that's one of those great words in Scripture. Whenever you see it there in the text, you have to go back and look and see what it's there for. Therefore always sends you backwards. And when we go backwards in the text, what we find is the answer to his question, or to our question, to what have we been called, the answer is everything in chapters 1 through 3. Paul spends chapters 1 through 3 laying out before us all that God has done, all that God is doing, and all that God will do for you and for me as believers in Jesus Christ. We spent a little bit of time before our communion just looking at some of those things that God has done. We are loved by God. We are chosen by Him. 
We have been redeemed in Christ. We've been born to a new life. We've received the Holy Spirit. We've been adopted into God's family. We are destined for heaven. All that and more in chapters 1 through 3. But if you go back and read chapters 1 through 3, and if, and if, I would encourage you to do that, especially if you're going to be around for the rest of the studies. Go back and spend some time there. If we, if we took the time to do chapters 1 through 3, this would be a 20-week study, not a 10-week study. But I encourage you to go back because it's the foundation upon which the rest of these chapters are, are built. But if you go back and read those, not only do you find that we have a glorious identity in Jesus Christ, we have a glorious inheritance with Him, not only do you find that, that it's, your salvation is a wonderful thing, what you'll discover about your salvation is that your salvation isn't just about you. Your salvation is about us. Your salvation is bigger than you. We live in a very individualistic culture. Everything in America is about me <laughs> as the individual. And we pride ourselves in individualism. But what the Scripture says is our salvation is about us. Yes, it is an individual thing for us to trust in Christ. But there are. it's about that God is doing something bigger than us. We get a glimpse of it if we go back and I'll just quickly take us through some other verses from these early chapters in Ephesians where Paul reminds us that God has made us alive together with Christ. And that chapter 2, verse 21, that being joined together, we rise to become a holy temple. Verse 22 of chapter 2, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. Chapter 3, verse 6, we are heirs together and members together and sharers together. Chapter 3, verse 16, that we might have, he prays that we might have power together with all the saints. And chapter 4, verse 16, he mentions that the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament. Do you get the idea that together is a big theme in the book? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and I hope this morning that you are, that you're trusting Him as your Savior, then everything that He says, all the truths in chapters 1 through 3 about your identity and your, and your salvation and your future are real and they are reality. You are God's child and we are God's children and we are in this together. And so as God's children who are in this together, God desires something radically different in our relationships than what goes on in the world with people who are apart from Christ. God desires for us to live in unity. Unfortunately, rather than having the exemplary relationships that reflect the unity that God desires for us. And you may recall, if you go back, that the night that, that Jesus was... It's the last night of the Last Supper. Jesus is with His disciples and He says, By this all men will know that you are My disciples. That you can recite the Ten Commandments. No, that you know the Lord's Prayer. No, that you go to church. No, by this all men will know that you are My disciples and that you love one another. 
Later that night, as he is praying for them and for us, he prays for all his future disciples. He says, Lord, may they be one as you and I are one. But unfortunately, other than having that and exemplifying those relationships that God desires for us, Christians have earned the reputation often for being contentious. We can't stand each other, so we're constantly splitting and factioning and breaking off. And we've left a poor impression of Christ with unbelievers. Mark Twain once wrote, So I built a cage, and in it I put a dog and a cat. After a little training, I got the dog and the cat to the point where they lived peaceably together. Then I introduced a pig and a goat and a kangaroo, some birds and a monkey. And after a few adjustments, they learned to live in harmony together. So encouraged was I by such successes that I added in an Irish Catholic, a Presbyterian, a Jew, and a Baptist missionary. And in a very short while, there wasn't a single living thing left in the cage. (laughs) Sad, he's probably right. So the Apostle Paul, understanding that that is our tendency, even as believers in Christ, he begins this section, he begins here chapter 4, urging us, Live up to your calling. And as he begins, he gives us seven critical attitudes. Attitudes that are essential for you and me to live together in unity. Essential for you and I if we're going to have relationships that do not fracture, but rather relationships that that are good and reflect godly love. We need these seven attitudes. The first attitude is humility. He says in verse 2, he says in verse 1, to walk in this manner of this worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Now he explains what that looks like. Verse 2, we need humility with all humility. Be completely humble, the NIV says. I think probably the greatest barrier to you and me in having good relationships is our pride. And maybe not for you, but it is for me. Our sinful nature is naturally self-focused. And so our sinful nature, it's, it's all about I. It's all about me. It's all about my. It's all about my agenda. It's all about my desires. It, it's all about what I want. And so pride moves us to complain when reality doesn't match our expectations. Pride leads us to jealousy when others get the recognition or the successes or the prosperity or the the thing that we want. And pride leads us into that. You see, the reality is, if you really begin to understand who you are before Christ, It's when we come to the foot of the cross and there realize that our condition is that we are sinful and wretched and empty and blind. We are lost 
We are broken. We are helpless. We are hopeless. We're desperately needy. When we realize that and we realize that God so loved us that He gave His one and only Son, that grows humility in us. John Piper said it like this, and he said it much better than I can. He said, precisely because he has been granted to know God, the Christian man is a man of lowliness. He regards his knowledge as small and lowly because he has seen the omniscient God. He regards his strength as small and lowly because he has seen the omnipotent God. He regards his righteousness, his goodness as small and lowly because he has seen the Holy One of Israel. And since the Christian is oriented toward God and not towards man, he is not puffed up by any little superiority that he might have other over humans. If an ant measures himself by the IDS tower, he will not boast over the flea. Most of us can't identify with the IDS tower. We've never been there. But I can identify with the arch. So we'll say, if the ant compares himself to the arch, he does not boast of himself over the flea. Such as it is, brothers and sisters. Far too often we boast of ourselves over the flea because we're comparing ourselves to the wrong thing. Humility is a key, if not the key, to having relationships of unity. The King James uses the word here, lowliness. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, I, I've heard many people over the years aspire to greatness. But I don't think I've met anyone who said, I aspire to lowliness. And yet the Apostle here is saying, that's what we need. I urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling which you have received with all Lowliness. Let's get lowly. Secondly, he says gentleness. With all humility or lowliness and gentleness. Gentleness doesn't mean weak. Gentleness means strength that is under control. Two things quickly to note about this. I note that that gentleness means that there's restraint. It means you have the power to do harm, but you restrain yourself from Harming someone. No better example could ever be given than that of Jesus Christ. You recall in the Garden of Eden that night that He was betrayed. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, in who has all power. You recall when the soldiers came to arrest Him and they asked Him to identify Himself. They said, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And He said, I am. You recall what happened? They fall back. He could have just struck them dead. He said later as he was rebuking Peter who tried to defend him with the sword, and he says, I could have, you know, don't you know I could call a legion of angels? Jesus chose, though he could have defended himself, though he could have, have wiped all those folks out, Jesus chose to submit himself to the 
trials, to the indignities, to the torture, to the beatings, and to the cross itself. And that is what He calls us to do. To not use our position, to not use our authority, to not use our physical strength, to not use our words to harm someone when it is within our power and it would be easy to do and even sometimes we think it would feel awfully good. Have you ever felt that way? Restraint. But gentleness also has implied in it tender care for the weak and the needy. So whether you are the President of the United States or the President of a company or whether you are the Chairman of the Board, the CEO, or whether you're a pastor or whether you're a deacon, whether you're an elder or whether you are a supervisor or a boss or a parent or a teacher or whether you're just big in size or whether you're strong, whether you are popular, whether you are rich, whatever power you have, however great or however limited, Gentleness implies using your power and your strength to serve those who are in need, to serve those that you can. Jesus called for us to follow His example and to be servants of all. He said, whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. The third attitude that we need we're going to have good relationships as we need patience. And patience is something we talk about a lot, but we most of us struggle with. I dare to say that probably some of you struggle with patience even on a Sunday. That some of you don't even make it home before you lose your patience. Now hopefully that won't happen today because I just reminded you. Many of you have probably been there where you get in the car and you lose your patience before you get out of the parking lot because the kids are acting up or or your wife or your husband won't quit talking and they're still in there and it's 30 minutes later. Or um, you get down the street and you get to the quick trip or whatever and that that clerk was so rude and you can't believe that they were rude. They're supposed to be nice, especially a quick trip. And uh, you... You, are, you lose your patience or you get to the restaurant and that waitress was so neglectful, that waitress was so slow and you lose your patience or they cooked your steak wrong and you got frustrated because you explained it so clearly. And have you ever been there? You just left church where you sing, you know, great songs of... Two things that will help us in terms of patience. I think patience has its root in two realities. It has its root, by, first of all, in humility. Again, we go back and we recognize who we are and who God is. And it begins to change us. And when you and I are humble, it changes us. You see, proud, haughty, arrogant people are not patient. They want to be served and they want to be served right now. And they want to be served in the right way. And They wonder how other people can possibly keep them waiting and they don't understand why they're not getting what they want and how can people be so ignorant, meaning not as smart as I am. And the humble person recognizes that the world does not revolve around them. The humble person recognizes that other people have lives that have problems and things and situations that we don't know anything about. 
And they're not really neglectful. They're distracted because of a problem in their life. We recognize that sometimes it's not innocent things. People really are insensitive and really are careless and really are thoughtless, really are selfish. But the reality is, while those people are that way, sometimes I am too. And the very fact that God has given me grace means I need to give that grace on. And so when people don't live up to my expectations and when they don't meet my standards, humility says I relax because I fall short of God's glory. And I give up my right to be served first or to be served competently or to be served at all. The second thing that patience, I think, is rooted in is God's sovereignty. You see, if God is sovereign, and Scripture is clear that He is, He is in charge of everything. And as we noted a few weeks ago, there is not one rogue molecule in this universe. Everything is under the the direction and the control of God. And when we think about that and we appreciate that, then when, and when we cast ourselves then in the care of God, we can relax. Because that driver that cuts you off, God allowed that. The traffic that got backed up on Interstate 70 and you got stuck there for an hour and you missed your appointment, it's okay, relax, God is in charge. There are no accidents with God and God has a plan and a purpose for everything He allows to come into our life. So why do we have to get impatient and all bothered? Why not just say, okay, Lord, my plans obviously aren't going to work out. So whatever it is you have planned, teach me, shape me, whatever it is you want to do in this. Some of us are very impatient people. We need to grow in this area. Fourthly, he says that we are to walk with humility and gentleness and with patience. He says, bearing with one another, to put it in a noun form, we are to have forbearance. What that does is it lets me know right away that sometimes good relationships are going to be difficult because we are relating with imperfect people. I read about one guy who said once, he said, I don't have problems with relationships. I just have problems with people. He's right. We can anticipate that even in the church, people are going to be difficult to get along with sometimes. And we're going to have to bear with them. Bearing is the idea that you're going to carry a burden. It's going to be difficult. And sometimes it's going to be difficult to live with your husband. Sometimes it's going to be difficult to live with your wife. Sometimes it's going to be difficult to live with that person in the pew next to you or down the pew from you or across the room. But God calls us here to bear with one another. To look past annoying habits and annoying mannerisms and annoying flaws and offenses. Forbearance isn't just tolerating people while inwardly we're thinking, how many ways could I kill them? 
That's not forbearance. Forbearance is choosing to focus on the important things rather than the silly little things that we often focus on. Forbearance is choosing to set aside my wishes and my desires and defer to the desires of others and the good of others. Forbearance is choosing to care for a difficult person because God loves them. Sometimes we think He's the only one who can love them. But He calls us to as well. Which brings up the next thing. The next attitude we need is love. God calls for us to love one another. It is the command in Scripture. A new command I give you, John will, will write in his letter, in that you love one another. Jesus said it first, actually. A new command I give you, that you love one another. And by this will all men know that you are My disciples. That you love one another. Love is the means, it's the key by which we bear with others. 1 Corinthians 13, it says, Love suffers long and is kind. The Apostle Peter wrote that above all, keep loving one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. Do you believe that? Love covers a multitude of sins and we need that in the body of Christ and we need that in our homes. We need that in our marriages. We need it in our relationships. A few weeks ago, I, I, I remember I had an incident in my life with just as I was thinking about it, I thought, yeah, love covers a multitude of sins. Had one of my grandkids over at the house, I won't mention which one, and they just peed right in the middle of the den. Now, if you did that, I'd smack you. At least I think I would. Maybe God would give me greater patience. With my grandkids, you just, oh well. You give them a hug, you clean them up. Why? Because I love my grandkids, man. They're the greatest thing since bread. You know, it's <laughs> love covers a multitude of sins. The last thing, the last two things in this list. He says, goes on in verse 3, he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. I say we need vigilance. The New American Standard says, be vigilant. My favorite translation of this actually is in the NIV, which says, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. What I realize from that is that, that having a harmonious relationship Living in unity with one another is going to take effort. Not only is it going to take effort, it means that we need to be proactive. We need to be thorough. We need to... Peace in our home will not happen automatically by default. Peace in the church will not happen automatically and by default. We have to work at it. We need to be proactive and be thorough. We need to pray for unity. We need to work hard to build unity. And we need to be vigilant for the things that seek to destroy it. Because our sin nature rears its ugly head all too often and Satan loves to stir up conflict in our home, in the church. 
I read years ago one popular authority on, on church conflict. I was reading a guy named William Treadwell. And he said, a church pastor may well be called to spend 30% or more of his time and his energy in conflict resolution. And after over 33 years in ministry, I would say he's right. Maintaining the unity takes effort. Vigilance. I also notice along with that, there's this little phrase there. He says, to keep or to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And what I realize is a couple of things from that. The unity that we have as, as believers isn't something that we just have to gin up, that we have to create. It's something that the Spirit has already provided Next week in the next three verses, which I gave you a sneak preview as I accidentally read ahead, we're going to find next week there's seven bonds that tie us together. Seven things that we share in common. But more than that, that little phrase reminds me of this. We need to depend upon the Holy Spirit's power to help us grow and to help us overcome the effect of the sin nature and the influence of the sin nature in our life, which is what divides us. And we need His help to grow and to reshape us and remake us so that these character qualities become the norm in our life. I note that several of these character qualities, and maybe you notice that, that they sound very similar to the, the list in Galatians chapter 5 of the fruit of the Spirit. The things that the God's Holy Spirit develops in us and grows in us. So we need His help. Lastly, it says that we are to work hard to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You and I need to be people who are people of peace. With that, I mean that we are people who are peaceable. People who are looking for peace rather than looking for a fight. <laughs> People who are looking to build rather than, than to destroy. And as we've already seen, people who are thinking of others rather than ourselves. We need to make it our aim to live in peace with one another. And I wonder if you're, you'd be honest with yourself as you look at yourself and evaluate your relationship at home with your husband or wife, your relationship with your children, your relationship with your co-workers, your relationship with your neighbors, your relationship with other folks at church or other family members or whatever, I wonder, when you enter the room, does the room grow more peaceful and joyful or does the room grow more tense? Is the air charged with, with controversy and friction and tension? See, if it's the latter stuff, you've got a problem. You're not a peaceable person. If you find that conflict follows you around, you better understand the common denominator. Seek to be a peaceable person. And so the Apostle Peter said, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Paul wrote to the Romans and he said, If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. This aspect of peace has one other 
implication or application, and that is that we should be peacemakers. You know, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers. The Apostle James wrote, he said, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. We need to be those who not only seek to be people of peace, but seek to be those who reconcile folks, who bring people together, who make peace where peace does not exist. Seven attitudes. Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, love, vigilance, and peace. I double-dog dare you. Double-dog dare you to take those seven things and go home and when nobody else is around, look at yourself as it were in the mirror and ask, on a scale of one to ten, how do I rank in each of these seven things? None of us are going to get all tens, okay? But may I just challenge you to take the two or three that are lowest on your list and bring that to God and say, God, grow me in these things. Change me. Help me to be more like Jesus in this area. And I guarantee you, I'll make a promise that if you do that, it will have a positive impact on your relationships at home and your relationships with other folks. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we don't like to see what we really look like. We like to look at ourselves in the mirror after we've got the we've taken the shower and and got the hair combed and the nice clothes on and and uh, we've got ourselves looking pretty good. Your Word, James says, serves as a mirror, but not a mirror like that. It's a mirror that really shows what's there. How foolish we would be, James says, if we look in the mirror and we walk away and don't do anything with what we've seen. Father, none of us have perfect relationships. But You desire that our relationships reflect the new life and the new identity which You have given to us and the new destiny that we have. And so Lord, I pray that this morning that as we have looked into Your Word that we will see some things there that You desire to change in us. And Lord, that You will bring it about. May we be different people next week than we were this week. May we be a little more like Christ. And may our relationships be a little more peaceful and a little more God-honoring. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.